I'm gonna pray because that's always a good way to start. God, I love you. And I know that that is barely a drop in the ocean compared to how much you love me. And I know that the way that you love me is the same as the way that you love all of these beautiful babies of yours. Your, your love is incredible. It is massive. Please help us see that tonight. Help us to grasp more of what it means that you love us. Please increase our capacity to receive that love from you. Please teach us new things. Please whisper to us, Holy Spirit. Please use me as I speak. I want to say what you have to say tonight. Amen. Amen. Okay. So, today we're talking about, uh, we're continuing our whole thing about stories in the Bible. We just tell you guys some stories. Um, and so, the stories in the Old Testament will all kind of point forwards to Jesus, and then all the stuff in the New Testament like looks back at Jesus. The whole Bible is about Jesus. Um, and that's what we're talking about this time. So today, I'm going to tell you about a guy called Hosea. Yes. A guy called Hosea. Um, so that you understand like who he was, I'll just give you a minute of context. So, way back, like, six-ish thousand years ago, if I had to guess, um, there's this guy called Abraham wandering around. And God says to him one day, hello, Abe, I'm, I'm God. Um, and so go to this place that I'm going to tell you to go, go to this land. And I'm gonna like I'm gonna give it to you, and I'm gonna give it to your descendants. You're gonna have more descendants than there are stars in the sky, and I'm gonna bless the whole world through you. And Abraham's like, okay, that sounds like a pretty good deal. Um, so he does the stuff that God tells him to do. He has a son called Isaac. Isaac has a son called Jacob. Jacob has twelve sons because he's oh, a busy chap. Um, he these these twelve sons each have families of their own, and these twelve families then become the twelve tribes of a nation which is called Israel. Okay. Uh, the nation of Israel, through a series of circumstances, we will not discuss today, for we have not the time, uh, takes the land that God <coughs> promised Abraham that his descendants would have. His descendants take it, and they live in there, and it's great. Um, and sometimes they follow God, and sometimes they don't. They start worshipping other gods and doing other things, and they've, they've, like, they've made this covenant with God. It's like a promise. It's like when you marry someone, you're making a covenant with them. That's what God does with his people. And he says, I'll be your God, and they say, we will be your people. And they keep breaking their end of the bargain. They keep not living like his people. Um, and God sends a lot of prophets to them to kind of point out to them that they're not living the way that they've said they're going to live. They're not doing stuff. Um, and one of these guys is Hosea. I who we're talking about today. So, uh, just, if you have a Bible, turn to Hosea. If you don't have a Bible, as none of you seem to, that's okay. There's grace. Um, and I will read it to you. I'm going to read from the New Living Translation, in case anyone's interested, just because I liked it for this. This is Hosea chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. When the Lord first began speaking to Israel through Hosea, he said to him, Go and marry a prostitute, so that some of her children will be conceived in prostitution. This will illustrate how Israel has acted like a prostitute by turning against the Lord and worshipping other gods. So Hosea married Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she became pregnant and gave Hosea a son. So, God says to this guy, Hosea, I want you to go and marry this woman. Uh, she's going to cheat on you. She, she's going to have some kids and you're not actually going to know if they're yours or not. Um, she's going to break your heart. But I want you to do this because it's what my people do to me. I want them to understand what they do to me. So, like, I was thinking about this. This is really a collection of my dreams. Um, how can God ask this of Hosea? Is that not really cruel and really, really unfair to ask him to do something like that? 
Surely if God, if God loves Hosea, then he wants good things for him, right? But the thing is, God does sometimes ask us to do difficult, painful things. Um, obedience doesn't mean that everything is going to be wonderful. Being obedient to God. Obedience means that you're willing for God to use you however he chooses to. And sometimes that can be hard. Sometimes it can be painful. And sometimes God will ask you to do things that perhaps make no sense to you. And sometimes you might catch yourself thinking, well, surely that isn't God, because God wouldn't ask something so difficult and so agonising of me. You know, God, God wants good things for me. God would only ask me to do something good. But the Father asked the Son, the Father asked Jesus to suffer death by crucifixion. He asked him to suffer the weight of all of humanity's sin and all the wrath of God against that. And, and that was a difficult thing to do. You know, that was hard. That was painful. But the Father asked it because he knew what it would achieve. He knew that we would get to be saved because of what Jesus did on that cross, and that's why he asked it of Jesus. And I think God asks this of Hosea, again, because he knows what it's going to achieve. He knows that it's going to be this graphic, beautiful picture for his people of the way that they've betrayed him, and then the way that he loves them regardless. Um, and another thing is God is not asking Hosea to do anything that he hasn't done himself. I think that's really, really important. It's not like God's going, you do this, and I'm going to sit here all cushy in my heavenly cloud throne, whatever that looks like, um, and just enjoy everything. Like, God has done the same thing that he's asking Hosea to do. So, Hosea and Goma are a picture of God and Israel in the Old Testament, like I said earlier, yeah? Um, and the way that God loves Israel, the people of Israel, even when they're unfaithful to him. But we're also meant to see Jesus in this story and ourselves. Hosea is like, he's a foreshadow of Jesus. He's like this, this glimmer of light that is meant to point us to the love of God in Jesus. And we are like Goma, which is not a very flattering picture, but it's true. We are fickle and faithless, and we, like God offers us his hand and his heart, and we basically spit in his face and just go off after anything and anyone else. We just, we throw his love down the toilet, and we will just give our hearts and our minds and our bodies to anything and everyone Else, we're like Goma, that's what we do. Uh, blah, 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 blah. But he loves us through it all, and he continues to pursue us. So God isn't asking Hosea to do anything that he hasn't done himself. He says, Hosea, I want you to love this woman, and it's going to be hard, it's going to be painful, but that's how I love you, and that's how I love Israel. Um, one more thought that I had about this as well was that Goma is more than just her profession. She's more than just a prostitute. Like She was a woman. She was a person. She had a personality. She had a sense of humour. She had quirks. She had dreams and hopes and talents and gifts and things. Just like she was a human being. And, I mean, this is entirely speculation because the Bible doesn't say it, but just based on what I know of God and how he works, I just it makes sense to me that she would be what Hosea needed in a wife. Like, unfaithfulness aside, because ain't nobody need that. Um, but perhaps throughout like the years, throughout the course of their relationship, Goma blessed Hosea and she loved him and she encouraged him and she showed him more of who God was. You know, because that is the kind of thing that I've known God to do. He takes a situation that we think is terrible and he redeems it and he brings joy and life out of it. And I reckon that's probably what he did here. So, in summary of that, um, no, I don't think it was cruel or unfair of God to ask Hosea to do this thing. I think he was just doing something bigger than perhaps Hosea or even we could see. Skipping ahead to chapter 3. Um, <coughs> verse 1 says, Then the Lord said to me, me being Hosea, Go and love your wife again, even though she commits adultery with another lover. 
This will illustrate that the Lord still loves Israel, even though the people have turned to other gods and love to worship them. I'm going to read that again because I didn't take that in. Then the Lord said to me, Go and love your wife again, even though she commits adultery with another lover. This will illustrate that the Lord still loves Israel, even though the people have turned to other gods and love to worship them. So, Gomer has left Hosea, right? She's left her kids, she's left the family, and she has gone back, not just to another lover, but to a life of prostitution, which you can see a bit more clearly in the next verse. So I read this, and my question is, why? Like, why would she go back? Why would she leave Hosea and go back to this life that she was living before? Um, And again, some of my thoughts on the subject. Perhaps she thought really nostalgically about her former life. I do this sometimes. I will will try and unpack this. So, I could just read my notes. So when you're following God and you are submitted to his will, there are things that you can't do, right? That's that's just part of the package, it's part of the deal. But people who don't follow God don't have those kind of restrictions. And that weirdly, can look a lot like freedom. So your non-Christian friends can perhaps say things or do things that you can't do because you follow Jesus, yeah? And that can actually be really hard sometimes because sometimes you want to do those things but you can't do them and you're a bit like, ah, what's going on here? Like, they, they, they somehow seem more free than you are when surely it should be the other way around and we're the ones who are free. Does that make sense? Okay, mm-hmm. good. It's not just me. Um, so you might look at their lives and want what they have, want this freedom that they have. And maybe that's how Gomer was feeling in this situation, right? As Hosea's wife, there are restrictions on what she can and cannot do, yeah? There are, there are behaviours that are expected of her. And perhaps that felt like imprisonment. Perhaps she was looking back at her former life, like, nostalgically, and, like, wanting, wanting that freedom, because like, it looked like freedom. But the thing with that is that it's not real freedom for Gomer or for us. Um, the things that God says we're not to do, which, in a word, is sin, um, those things have consequences and they damage your character and they damage your heart and they pull you away from your loving father or your loving husband and in the end you just end up in chains you, you're not free uh, there's a reason that our father asks us to keep ourselves from these things he's not doing it because he's mean or just because he can he loves us and he wants good things for us he wants the best for us and so when he asks us not to do something it's because he loves us, it's out of that love, it's to protect us and to care for us and all this kind of stuff. Um, yeah, he knows what will actually do us good and what won't. And it is worth giving up this, this false freedom to be constrained by a loving God. Because in the end, we are the ones who are actually free. We are the ones who get life in all of its fullness. So, uh, maybe that is why Goma left Hosea. Maybe she thought that her previous life had more freedom. And she's like, ain't nobody got time for this marriage crap. So, moving on. <laughs> won't, go, won't go down there. <laughs> marriage is awesome. I love marriage. I'm just not going to get married. Um, so, maybe Goma left because she thought that her previous life had more freedom than being married to Hosea. Maybe Goma left because she thought that someone couldn't actually love her the way that Hosea claimed to. Like, if you think about what her life must have been like up to this point, she is so used to being used and then just cast aside. Like, she would have put up all these walls around her heart. Just She would have had to to protect herself. Yeah, and she's like, she can't, she can't trust that someone actually loves her like this. She can't be vulnerable. She can't let them in. That's, that's too much of a risk. And maybe some of you feel like that. Maybe some of you know what that is like. So perhaps Gomer leaves Hosea before he can leave her. Whatever the reason, Gomer is gone. She's gone. And God says, Hosea, I want you to go and find her. I want you to bring her back. 
I want you to stay faithful to her when she is unfaithful to you. I want you to bring her home and love her as if she never left you, as if she never cheated on you, because that is what my people do to me, and that's how I love my people, and I want them to see it. And that love just blows my mind. So, um, God says to Hosea, go find her. Imagine the search, right? Imagine, imagine where Hosea has to go to find his wife. Like the, the, the places in town, I mean, we don't really have this in Oxford because it's Oxford, but like, in other towns, they have those places where you just don't go, right? You, you just, you, like, his friends would be saying, Hosea, you don't go to those places. Like, a man of God, a holy good man, is not seen in those kind of places. Those are the places that Hosea had to go looking for his wife, right? Just, uh, like these streets that Hosea walked, he's asking everybody he meets if they've seen his wife. He's going to the brothels and he's going to the slave markets and he's going to the darkest and most dangerous and the dirtiest places looking for his wife. And this is what Jesus does too. Jesus left heaven to come looking for us. Jesus came to the darkest, dirtiest places. He walked in our mud. He experienced our pain. He took our place and he endured an agonizing death so that we could go free. And this is still what he does today. He will go to the lowest, darkest place looking for you. When you hit rock bottom, he will go there looking for you. However bleak or disgusting it is, he will go as far as he has to to find you and to bring you home. Because that's what his love looks like. So Hosea does eventually find Goma. Uh, she's a piece of property in the sex slave industry. Perhaps he finds her in some back alley brothel owned by someone who doesn't give a damn who Hosea thinks she is. Uh, maybe he finds her in a slave market just up for auction to the highest bidder. Just like the state that this woman must be in by this point. Like she would have been beaten and probably naked and just dirty and in chains and broken. And it says in chapter 3 verse 2, so I bought her back. So Hosea looks at her in all of her mess and he says, how much? And he pays for what is already his. He buys her back out of slavery again. And of course, in this, we see such a beautiful picture of Jesus, who did the same thing as Hosea. He paid for what was already his, although he, of course, paid a far higher price than the price that Hosea paid. Hosea paid 15 pieces of silver and five bushels of barley and a measure of wine. Jesus looked at us in all of our mess, and he paid with his life to have us back. I'm, I'm hoping that you can see the reckless love of God in this. We're going to sing a song about this in a bit. Um, and it's not that God himself is reckless, it's the way that he loves is. It just it is. It's, it's all in. There's no regard for his own comfort or his own safety. His love doesn't consider himself first. His love isn't cautious. There's no plan B with the love of God. He gives his heart completely. And when we sin, that hurts him, that pains him. But no matter how many times we break his heart, he just he opens up again and lets us back in again every <coughs> single time, over and over and over again. His love saw you when you hated him, and it said, I don't care what it costs me, I will even lay my life on the line to have your heart. He's, he's just that good, and he's that kind, and he loves you that much, and he never gives up. And maybe you struggle to see that love, to believe that someone could actually be that good, and could love you that much. And I think Goma probably struggled to believe that Hosea could love her as much as he said he did. But there was this moment when I'm sure that she knew it, when she knew that he loved her, this moment that she would always be able to look back on, when Hosea knelt in the dirt beside her, and he's wild-eyed, and he's bruised, and he's dirty from his search for her, and he unlocks her chains, and he says, you are my wife, 
and I've come to take you home. Hosea proves his love for her by finding her again and buying her back again and loving her as if she never left at all. And God proves his love for us by the cross. So if you ever doubt his love for you, you can look back at that moment. The way that Goma could look back at this moment when Hosea took her from wherever she was, just chained up, and he saved her and he set her free, you can look back at the cross because that's the same thing that God has done for you. So I want us to do that, just look back at the cross for a minute to finish off what I'm saying. Um, and I'm going to do that by reading you something. So if you, we're going to go straight into worship after this. So if you find a space where you would normally worship, like stand up and find, find space and get rid of beanbags. And then sit again where you are. <laughs> uh, so this is a really interesting book. I do not agree with everything that he says. Um, but he tells the story of the life of Jesus in a way that just like, it just gets me, it just moves me. Um, and I just want to read you a little bit of that. He takes some poetic liberties, but that's okay. I might cry, but that's okay. You can cry too, it's a safe space. Um, if you need a hug, we're here. Thanks Sam. No so this, this is what the love of God looks like. Um, yeah, this is, and this is where you can look back to to know that it's real and to know that he loves you. Uh, so, we're gonna pick up around the Last Supper. I should say, um, Jesus, his name in Aramaic was Yeshua. His friends would have been like, well, Yeshua, what's up, Yeshua, what's up mate? Um, so, but when we, when we translate that through Greek and Latin and stuff, we end up with Jesus, which is why we call him Jesus. But in this, he is called Yeshua, so I'm gonna say that. And that's Jesus. The evening sees Yeshua and the friends celebrating the festival in a borrowed upstairs room. His mood is strange, and they keep looking at him, perturbed, as they eat the roast lamb and the yeastless bread with bitter herbs, and they share the cup of wine and tell the story of how the one God long ago brought his people out of captivity. He doesn't seem like a person whose plans have failed. He's not confused or despondent at all, yet he's full of trembling intensity. Everything he says seems deliberate and effortful, as if this dinner in lieu of a revolution were a part of something terrible he was making himself do, step by step, word by word, action by action. After supper, he does something that isn't in the festival ritual. He picks up one of the flat loaves that they haven't touched yet. This is my body, he says, and he snaps it in half using both hands. He asks for the wine cup. This is my blood, he says. Do this when you remember me. It's one of those likeness things again, but the friends don't think too hard about what he means because they're bursting out with anxiety at the finality of the way that he's talking. Remember you? Remember you? Where are you going? We won't leave you. Don't worry about today. It doesn't matter. We won't leave you, teacher. But they do. A few hours later, in the dark, on the open ground at the edge of the city where they camped out, a patrol of temple guards finds them, and the friends, looking to Yeshua for guidance and getting none, hesitate waver and run for it, leaving him alone in custody. For the rest of that night, he gets frog-marched from place to place, to a quick convocation of the temple's law court at the chief priest's house, and then onwards to an equally quick interview with the yawning governor, called from his bed to confirm that the empire's civil arm agrees with the temple's judgment. This haste not indicating that Yeshua's is a particularly urgent or important case, but precisely that the city's two authorities want to keep it minimised, with this minor northern rabbi who's made a nuisance of himself briskly disposed of before daylight comes. He isn't especially maltreated, 
He isn't singled out for particular cruelties. The ordinary, ordinarily bad things that happen to prisoners happen to him, that's all. He gets punched a few times to keep him moving, worked over a bit to encourage contrition and cooperation before his conversations with power. Maybe he loses some skin, some teeth, has his nose broken, gets a few cracked ribs, but it's routine. It's perfunctory. It isn't the inventive horrors of a torturer really going to town. It's just a consequence of his new position as an object, a still living being, which is already pretty much a thing as power acts on it. This body is already beyond human consideration. It need not be treated gently or with an eye to its future survival because it has no future. The whole process is marking it out quite clearly for death, and so it doesn't matter what happens to it. The only oddity is that Yeshua, who talked so eloquently, who shadowboxed with words so deftly on occasion, refuses entirely to defend himself. All night long he only echoes back the accusations. You threaten the temple. You say so, says Yeshua. You're a blasphemer, a Sabbath breaker, an enemy of the law. You say so. You think you can forgive sins. You say so. You claim to be king. You say so. You're a menace to public order. You say so. All night long, a human mirror wall, reflecting back what's in front of it, except that all the while he inclines his bruised head and concentrates on whoever's speaking as if they were the only person in the world. He doesn't need to ask what they want him to do for them now, since they're telling him the answer all the time. We need you to be guilty. We need you to be the mess that must be removed so the world can work smoothly. We need you to be the unclean shadow of our righteousness, our good imperial order. We need you to be dirt, disease, crime, shame, humiliation, chaos, darkness, so that we can be virtue, certainty, light. We need you to be in the dirt soon. It's nothing personal. Daylight finds him in a procession again, but this time no one could mistake him for a king. He's stumbling along under the weight of his own instrument of execution, a great big wooden thing that he can hardly lift, with an escort of the Empire's soldiers, and the bystanders who've come blinking out of the lodgings where they spent the festival night, they don't see their hopes, or even the possibility of their hopes parading by. They see their disappointment. They see their frustration. They see everything in themselves that's too weak or too afraid to confront the strapping paratroopers, and much though they hate the soldiers, they hate him more for his pathetic slide into victimhood. Word of his loose living, his impiety, his pleasure in bad company goes around in whispers. And just look at him. There's something disgusting about him, don't you think? Something that makes you squirm inside, something furtive. He's so pale and sickly looking with all that dried blood round his mouth. He looks like a paedophile being led away by the police. He looks like something from under a rock as if he doesn't deserve the daylight. He's a blot on the new day. Someone kicks him as he goes by and whoops, down he goes. Flat on his nose with the cross pinning him like a struggling insect. And let's face it, it's funny. Yes, she was a joke. He's less a messiah, more a patch of something nasty on the pavement. And as he struggles on, he recognises every roaring, jeering face. He knows our names. He knows our histories. And since, as well as being a weak and frightened man, he's also the love that makes the world, to whom all times and places are equally present, he isn't just feeling the anger and the spite and the unbearable self-disgust of this one crowd on this one Friday morning in Palestine. He's turning his bruised face towards the whole human crowd, past and present and to come, and accepting everything we have to throw at him, everything we fear we deserve ourselves. The doors of his heart are wedged open wide, and in rushes the whole pestilential flood, the vile and roiling tide of cruelties and failures and secrets. Let me take that from you, he's saying. Give that to me instead. Let me carry it. Let me be to blame instead. I'm big enough. I'm wide enough. I'm not what you were told. I'm not your distant king or your angry judge. I'm the father who longs for every last one of his children. 
I'm the friend who'll never leave you. I'm the light behind the darkness. I'm the shining that your shame can't extinguish. I am the ghost of love in the torture chamber. I am change and hope. I'm the refining fire. I'm the door where you thought there was only a wall. I'm what comes after deserving. I'm the earth that drinks up the bloodstain. I am gift without cost. I am. I am. I am. Before the foundations of the world, I am. But it's killing him all the same. He never promised that you'd be safe if you tried to live without fear. The soldiers lead him out of the city gate and laboriously, slipping and sliding, with crunching blows from spear butts to motivate him, they drive him up the small cone of Skull Hill where death sentences are carried out. They tie him onto the cross and plant it upright. It's the Empire's punishment for rebellious slaves, slow and nasty by design, devised to be a spectacle of days-long struggle and gasping to passers-by. On a cross, you choke to death when you're finally too tired to heave your own weight up to take the next breath. Yeshua's cross has a sign on it over his head. Here's your king, it says, in all the languages of the province. The chief priest didn't want it, but the governor has a point to make. And Yeshua hangs there. He twists against the ropes to snatch the precious air, which whistles in his flattened nose. He can't do anything deliberate now. The strain of his whole weight on his outstretched arms hurts too much. The pain fills him up, displaces thought as much for him as it has for everyone else who's ever been stuck to one of these horrible contrivances, or for anyone else who dies in pain from any of the world's grim arsenal of possibilities. And yet he goes on taking in. It's not what he does, it's what he is. He is all open door to sorrow, suffering, guilt, despair, horror, everything that can't be escaped. And he doesn't even try to escape it. He turns to meet it and he claims it all as his own. This is mine now, he's saying. And he embraces it with all that's left in him, each dark act, each dripping memory, as if it were something precious, as if it were itself the loved child tottering homeward on the road. But there's so much of it. So many injured children, so many locked rooms, so much lonely anger, so many bombs in public places, so much vicious zeal, so many bored teenagers at roadblocks, so many drunk girls at parties that someone thought they could have some fun with, so many jokes that go too far, so much ruining greed, so much sick ingenuity, so much burned skin. The world he claims, claims him. It burns and stings, it splinters and gouges, it locks him round and drags him down. Because this is not a rich man's offer of something he can easily spare. This is not some supernatural personage being temporarily inconvenienced. This is love, going where we all go, all of us, when we end. Yeshua is long past trying to show what lies beyond the limits of the world. He's travelling into limit himself now, deeper and deeper, and the limits are tightening in on him, tightening down to a ribcage that won't film, tightening on him as consequences tighten on anyone. He's gone to the place our sorrows lead to at their worst, guilt's dead end, panic's no exit loop, despair's junkyard where everything is busted. There's nothing to keep him company there but the light that he has always felt shining beneath things. But the light is going. He's so deep down now in the geology of woe, so buried beneath the mountain's weight of it that the pressure is squeezing out his feeling for the light. There's nothing left of it for him but a speck, a pinpoint, the world grinds in on itself, a dot dimming as the strata of the dark are piled heavier and heavier on it. And then it goes out. Of course it does. Love can't repair death. Death is stronger than love. We all know that. But Yeshua didn't until now. This is the first time in his entire life he's ever felt alone. Now there is no love song. There is no kind father. There's just a man on a cross dying in pain, a foolish man who chose to give up life and breath to be a carcass on a pole. The yellow walls of the city blur with Yeshua's tears and he opens his mouth and howls the news, new only to him, that we are abandoned in a dark place where help never comes.
The friends creep out at dusk and ask for the body, promising anonymous burial and no fuss. They're allowed to carry it away, wrapped in a tube of linen that slowly stains from the inside. Skull Hill sees lots of such cortejas. There's only time to stick what's left of Yeshua hastily in a rock tomb by the highway. Washing the corpse properly and laying it out will have to wait. The Holy Saturday's coming, and no one wants any confrontations. All day long, the next day, the city's quiet. The air above the city lacks the usual thousand little trails of smoke from cook fires. Hymns rise from the temple. Families are indoors. The soldiers are back in barracks. The chief priest grows hoarse with singing. The governor plays chess with his secretary and dictates letters. The free bread the temple distributed to the poor has gone stale by midday, but it tastes all right dipped in water or broth. Death has only interrupted life as much as it ever does. We die one at a time and disappear, but the life of the living continues. The earth turns. The sun makes its way towards the western horizon no slower or faster than it usually does. Early Sunday morning, one of the friends comes back with rags and a jug of water and a box of the grave spices that are supposed to cut down on the smell. She's braced for the task. But when she comes to the grave, she finds that the linen's been thrown into the corner and the body is gone. Evidently, anonymous burial isn't quite anonymous enough after all. She sits outside in the sun. The insects have woken up here at the edge of the desert, and a bee is nosing about in a lily, in a lily like silk thinly tucked over itself, but much more perishable. It won't last long. She takes no notice of the feet that appear at the edge of her vision. That's enough now, she thinks. That's more than enough. Don't be afraid, says Yeshua. Far more can be mended than you know. Oh, Jesus. Thank you for your reckless love. Thank you that love is stronger than death. Thank you that you were abandoned so we never have to be. Thank you for examples like Hosea who show us your love, but thank you that you didn't just leave it to examples, that you came yourself to show us what your love looks like. Thank you, Jesus. Whew.